When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 33 of Music is Not a Genre, MXG. I was ready that time. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Please take a moment to support this podcast at patreon.com slash music is not a genre. If you uh, are only listening, you there are videos you can see. You get to see what I'm wearing and the diorama and my weird hand gestures. But more importantly, this podcast could not run without your support. So if you have heard uh, one episode or five or 20 or 50 or the whole hundred and almost 200 episodes uh, now would be a great time for you to jump in at patreon.com slash music is not a genre and show your support for as little as $5 a month. Uh, please also go to youtube.com slash at music is not a genre and subscribe there. Of course, YouTube subscribe. It's free. You get to see all these videos and so many other things, live music, recorded music. My website is nickdomadio.com where everything is. Along with, if you go to the menu there all the way in the right and click shop, so go to nicktomatio.com and click shop on the menu, you get to buy a t-shirt. And if you join Patreon, you get a forever discount on those t-shirts, by the way. And as always, please listen to and support my band, Rec, at recarea.bandcamp.com or wherever you get your music or both. Hell, why not? So let's get right to it. Uh, This is a big one and we're going to have to, you know, uh, see how it goes. It could be very emotional or it could just be, you know, the, the way we'd want it to go. And that is The Beatles, Part 5, Breakdown to Basics. So we've now gone through The Beatles' career uh, so far all the way from the beginning, a little before the beginning, I guess you could say. And, and we're now reaching, and I did say this was a six-part episode, and that is true. Now, if you go to the playlist that I made on YouTube, you will find, that's youtube.com slash at music is not a genre, you will find that there are already six uh, episodes in there. And that's because last season I did an episode on Beatles books and movies and TV shows and stuff like that. So I'm throwing that into that playlist as sort of a bonus or, you know, a a side thing there. But this is uh, officially the fifth of six episodes that I'm doing this season. And you may wonder, well, if we're getting to the end of the career here, because yes, this does indeed deal with, if you're looking at the diorama, you can see them. If not, uh, let it be an Abbey Road. And that's that for them. Then how could there be six episodes? Well, it's because the final episode, I'm going to do uh, brief overviews of all four of their solo careers. 
that's something to look forward to. But let's get into this. This week right now, and that is we are in 1969. Uh, Big year for so many reasons. The moon, you know, stuff. So, uh, the you know, biggest reason being this was the last official time or the last time the Beatles were all together in, in one place. And the last time they all recorded together was in this year. Uh, there was a little bit of recording that happened at the beginning of 1970, but it wasn't all four of them. And that, I guess, that was kind of that as far as them working together uh, in any capacity as a band. And they had already sort of broken up by then, and they officially broke up soon after. This is stuff that you probably already know. If you are coming to this relatively new, I will tell you right off the bat, I'm not going to give a blow-by-blow account of their last month's or how they broke up, I might get into a little bit of why and what it means, but I, I'm not going to rehash that history because you can find it anywhere in many different forms. Uh would recommend books, but you can find it in documentaries and etc. etc. I will say this. They had known since at least Brian Epstein's death, if not sooner, that they were getting tired. If you go to Shoot, I forget if it was the second or third. I think it was part two of this series. Strung Out and Stretching Superstars. You correct me if I'm wrong. I already talk about how they'd been together for a few years and hit superstardom and were doing movies and, and tours and junkets and all that stuff and recording and getting burnt out and knew that it, they, they needed some kind of a change, which, of course, after help and uh, leading into Rubber Soul and Revolver meant that they would stop touring. You know, and that was one thing that helped ease the the load and help and, and allow them to focus more on music. So these are all kind of going over some of what I talked about in the other episodes, uh, the other parts of this six part series. But then, of course, you have '67 and you have Sergeant Pepper and all that happened there, and Brian Epstein's death. I know, and it's been said that Brian Epstein was. Not the greatest manager when it came to money and business decisions, but he was a good leader. He was a good figurehead for them, and he was somebody who was able to kind of keep them uh, together and moving forward and always respecting their wishes, etc., etc. And we've heard this before, and I think it's true, that when Brian Epstein died, uh, the you know it wasn't that the wind was out of their sails is that the wind was blowing them everywhere and they didn't know how to steer the ship. I don't know. Lovely metaphor. Right. And you know, they were close to him, especially John. It was a real blow. And of course they wanted to continue. They wouldn't have, you know, continued another few years if they didn't want to, but there was already a part of them that knew that things were winding down in one way or another, or that if something uh, significant didn't happen that it would it would end uh, sooner if not later and I think it ended later than some of them thought that it would but sooner of course than we would have liked although I'll talk about that a little bit later I th- I think of it this way we as hardcore Beatles fans were coming into this new and you know you go through their history and you see how the tumult that led up to all this we mourn their demise. You know, we mourn their breakup. 
But a better way to look at it is this. We should be thankful that they stayed together after Sergeant Pepper. You know, Sergeant Pepper was already in motion, Brian Epstein's death. That was going to happen either way. Uh, they powered through the culmination of that, and that kind of burnt them out in a different way. They could easily have said, well, we hit our pinnacle. We're back on top, you know, after uh, a couple of, uh, obviously, you know, in hindsight, critically acclaimed albums, but ones that, you know, weren't, they were taking them out of that kind of teeny bopper phase. And let's just call it a day. But no, they knew they had more to do and they wanted to do more and they were good friends and they wanted to stay together as a band because they had already been together for, you know, a decade at that point, more or less, and uh, or at least three of them had. And so I think that we should be thankful that those last three years happened or two and a half years or whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. And I'll say this too, while they ultimately, all of them, saw the breakup as the best course of action eventually, even though some uh, came to that realization later than others, Paul being uh, the main one, they all in their own ways still through that tried to keep things together as long as they could. And and very in very different ways, but still finding a way to come together. And yes, I use that on purpose to create some of their best music, if not maybe their best music, uh, hard to judge. Yes, you know, ear of the beholder and all that. But I will weigh in and I'll tell you now, the end of this episode, before we get to the featured songs, I'm going to weigh in on some of the best albums in various categories, uh, Beatle-wise, uh, as it says in the text. If you read the text below, whether you're listening or watching, the text is there. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So part of the way they thought in 69, let's figure out how to stay together, was, well, they looked backwards. And they said, well, when we started, we felt like, you know, this could never end or however you want to put it. And, and, and we were together forever and going strong. How can we recapture that? Why don't we get back to basics? We've done multi-layered and, and all over the place and psychedelic and et cetera, et cetera, and studio tricks and such like that. Why don't we just get back to the basics of creating music? which of course is part of why Get Back is Get Back. It's not the whole reason. And if you watched the TV special, you know it's not the whole reason. But that's when they started with the whole Let It Be concept. And I mean, they were, I don't know if it was coerced or some of them liked it, you know, into uh, chronicling it on video. And again, I'm not going to go through that. That uh, Michael and Zihog movie showed them as horribly breaking up and everything was terrible. And then we see the get back and TV and it kind of, you know, is like revises the history and we see more of how they still worked well together and loved each other and wanted things to work on some level. But that was one way they tried to freshen things up. You know, let's get back to basics. Let's get back to just creating music in a room with each other. Even if we bring in ideas, whatever, however, you know, the way they would normally work. Uh, the other way they tried to freshen things up, bring in collaborators the year before they had brought in Eric Clapton. And and then, you know, Billy Preston comes along and is on a couple of tracks and is on the rooftop. And that's the other thing they did was trying to get back in some way to performing. It ended up being a much smaller and more impromptu performance than they had originally planned on the rooftop. But obviously significant for us and for them. But that was one way where they thought, well, this is what we, this is one of the things we love. And it's one of the ways we can show that we really are back to basics because we can take the music that we're making now in the studio and recreate it or create it live. You know, you know, some of those recordings came from the live, uh, you know, concert in a way that they couldn't do with Rubber Soul, Revolver. Sergeant Pepper, Magical Mystery Tour, Yellow Submarine. They're just not possible to recreate live. Some of White Album, same thing, you know. Speaking of which, the White Album really kind of uh, fracturing them in a lot of ways, but also keeping them going because they were allowed to, you know, or they gave themselves the permission to pursue their own individual things, even though they brought it together for that, you know, eponymous album. Uh, they, I think one of the other ways they tried to keep this fresh and, 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 you know, reboot was to say, Hey, let's come together 
and work more on each other's recordings. They collaborate more. And we saw that again in the Get Back series of how much they collaborated and how much little bits of advice were given by, you know, a song that Paul brings in or someone else brings in and let's do this here, add this or change this. And we know the story. You may know the story of how when, you know, John brought come together and it sounded a lot like the Chuck Berry song that he took that first line from and it was faster and more kind of rockabilly blues. And Paul said, let's slow it down. And they created that amazing bass and just things like that, that showed that they were still amazing collaborators, you know, working together on each other's songs and opening the floor up more to George's contributions. We know how significant his contributions became from really the White Album on. And I would include Yellow Submarine in that uh, when you think of a song like It's All Too Much or It's Only a Northern Song, which are underrated songs in my book. Uh, And then, of course, the things that he contributed to, uh, you know, Let It Be and Abbey Road were massively significant. Really, his creative peak was throughout all this period and when he, you know, released All Things Must Pass. Uh, and even Ringo, you know, uh, collaboration on Octopus's Garden, just, you know, being able to contribute more was another way they tried to bring them all back together. I think even founding Apple Records was, a, was an attempt for them to stay together, to find a way to take control of business and to expand the business to, uh, you know, nurture other artists and have something that they could focus on that wasn't the music. So if they wanted to go off and, you know, John does his solo albums even before they break up and each one of them had their solo work that they were working on that eventually became what it became, they could do all that and focus on more of a kind of a cut and dry business thing or helping to collaborate and produce and work with them and perform with other artists to create these recordings Uh, including James Taylor, you know, which I'll mention him a little bit later, getting away from the Beatle grind. And that was all attempts to, I I think, keep them together, to to continue to work together in a healthy way. And of course, we know none of it really worked because other factors came into play. And some of those factors, burnout uh, was still there. Uh, differing opinions on how to move forward, both uh, artistically and business-wise, you know, Alan Klein and all of that. They were each kind of uh, diving more into their personal lives with new new loves, new marriages, and where they wanted to live, the time off that they wanted to have, any, you know, emotional issues they were going through uh, and and preferences like that, and and Ringo doing the Magic Christian and, you know, film and just expanding in all these ways. Uh, and then, of you know, right. And so those were some factors. But I think the one non-negotiable factor, I'll go back to right in the beginning of this episode, was Brian Epstein's death. I think, throw all that together, Brian Epstein would have been able to get them into a room to figure out the Alan Klein thing in a better way. You know, Brian Epstein would have been able to open up the floor to have them redirect in ways that would have probably kept them together at least a few more years. And that's my statement here, is that all of those things that we know of that may have been factors in breaking them up would have been mitigated if he had still been alive. Because as we know, George Martin was very hands-off on that aspect of the Beatles. He was, you know, jumping in on the music, but the rest of it was not his bat. Here are some things I know that didn't break them up. One is the changing landscape of music. 
they changed as much as the music changed. They changed music as much as, uh, you know, more than many other artists and as much as some other artists. There were new things coming that would take over and become the 70s. But as we know, they were all a big part of the 70s and in very successful ways. You know, they kind of took turns being super successful as solo artists. So it wasn't the changing landscape of music. It was not the dislike of each other. They had their squabbles, but they squabbled like family and not like the kind of family that you only want to see at, 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 you know, holiday or even less, but the kind where, you know, you get into a fight and then, uh, you know, the next night or that night you sit down and you eat together or play a game or whatever it is you do. That didn't break them up. They would have figured all of that out. Even if they needed breaks from each other and took more time between albums, whatever. A lot of bands have done that, certainly. You know, we talk about U2 from a couple episodes ago and how they've been on the the cusp of breaking up so many times and they realized they needed a refresher or redirect or take a break or whatever it was. And that could have happened for them. Uh, I don't think Phil Spector was the reason uh, that they broke up. I think that that had things been more cohesive at the time and they had been communicating better, they would have figured out a way to bring Phil Spector in to do the things he did well on the things that needed that or could have, you know, been served by that and had him leave alone the things that didn't, which is one reason why I have a third album up here in my diorama, Let It Be Naked from 2003, because I'll get into that when I get into the albums. I think that could have been mitigated. The other thing that didn't break him up, and I'm saying this to all you people who claim to be Beatles fans. Not all of you, but these specific people. Yoko did not break up the Beatles. It's a joke. It's a, you know, it's it's a meme before memes were memes that the main reason the Beatles broke up was Yoko. And I don't care if you saw or didn't see the Get Back TV series. Even before I saw that, if you have eyes and ears and a heart and a, and a brain and really were paying attention to something beyond misogyny or whatever other reasons you've demonized Yoko, then you would realize that she's not the reason they broke up. You know, she was barely even a catalyst for, for any of it and would have been fine, I think, to go along with whatever was going to happen next either way. But a lot of all this did create strife. And through all that strife, somehow they pumped out two albums of incredible music and incredibly diverse music and different from things they had done before in, that, in a kind of um, valedictory, you know, lap here, bringing in aspects of everything they had done before. I think if you put these two albums together, but it, in new and fresh ways and in ways that are, you know, are not just significant, but we couldn't, we wouldn't understand or know the Beatles, you know, now the way we do if these two albums didn't exist, you know. And the amazing thing about that is almost all of this was done in less than a year. In, was it, nine, ten months, you know, off and on. There was a little bit that happened at the beginning of 1970. There was uh, Across the Universe uh, original tracks that were recorded in 1968 that were repurposed. But otherwise, everything else on these albums done in that one year. Now, they had done that before where they put two albums out in a year and all of that. But with that momentum of being in a younger phase of their career, 
you know, going through what they were going through at this point and doing this, absolutely incredible. And I think in many ways, despite and because of all of that, they were looser. They were less encumbered than ever, uh, partly because the White Album freed them up to do, what you know, things that, uh, you know, some of it was itself a back to basics or just do things that they wanted to do and know that they could do that and put it all together. Partly because they knew I think a lot, deep down, no matter how hard they were trying, that this was the beginning of the end. So they could let it all go in that way that often happens in life for various reasons where, I always think of it this way, you know, for two weeks, you need a freaking haircut. And then for some reason on the day you schedule it, your haircut, your hair has never looked better. And that to me is that feeling of, well, you're not trying so hard to make it look a certain way. You're letting it go and accepting it. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, I mean, you still get the haircut, right? And they still broke up. But they must have known that if this was what it was going to be and that's that, then let's, let's let it all come out. Let's be loose about it. But let's be diligent about it in a way that they always have been and continue to be the ones who are alive and have fun you know, and, and that's it. Yeah. So there are some poetic moments that I'll mention before we get into the albums and I'll probably re-mention them again. Uh, you know, when you think of things like, uh, foreshadowing the, the end, there's the song, the end, there's long and winding road being the last single. There's two of us being just this heartfelt kind of elegy of their, of their relationship which was a, in many ways a primary relationship. Uh, so, you know, there's, those are just some things that I'll probably mention again later because right now we're getting into the albums. And this may be a point at which you, if you haven't already wanted to throttle me, you know, and I'm, I'm doing throttling motion. For those of you just listening, I've got my uh, hands around a, uh, you know, imaginary neck. This may be the point at which you've just had it, and and maybe not, or you will agree. And that is that I am doing these albums in order of creative chronology and not of release chronology, because one of them emphasizes the business, and one of them emphasizes the music. And while you can say there was a touch-up thing that happened in January of 1970 of Let It Be, so does that technically mean that's the last album sure but the vast majority of it was completed you know before abbey row was released and growing up the, those of us who knew the beatles well w- would always say in our minds and hearts and sometimes out loud that abbey road was technically their last album so agree or disagree i'd love to hear your thoughts on that but that's to further emphasize that my focus is always going to be more on the music than anything else so let's get to it, right? Let it be. Uh, again, a lot I don't need to go over, but I'll mention some things. And that is, of course, George Martin helped them record and produce all of this. And then they felt like it wasn't going well or the way they wanted to or they needed to redirect, which is when they shifted to recording Abbey Road. But prior to that, they had finished almost all of it. And for one reason or another... Uh, you know, self-consciousness or just bad feelings. They weren't super happy with it. And some were happier than others. Paul was relatively happy with what was already there. Uh, George Martin 
its work, some of which has, you know, was maintained on the finished product, was put aside for uh, Phil Spector's touches, you know. If you know anything about Phil Spector other than the scandal that happened, you know, later in life and all that crap, which, you know, is, is a horrible thing for everybody involved, what you might know musically is that he already had a track record of his wall of sound and creating, you know, uh, beautiful and highly produced works of various types of music. So they bring Phil in. And I think John really, you know, I know, I think George as well pushed for it, but John really pushed for it because he was at a place where, and that lasted pretty much to the end of his life, didn't like the sound of his voice very well. Uh, and I think he was kind of like that throughout the career, but especially at this point, and wanted a lot more of the candy and, and you know, things. They had that kind of, you know, fake voice doubling technology that they, you know, started working with a little while before that, et cetera. And then Phil Spector was like the icing on the cake, the literal icing on the cake. And uh, he's, to me, buttercream. You know, I, I mean, there's some like whipped icing powdered sugar you know that i absolutely love because it's light it's just light it's just enough to make that cake taste a little better and phil specter at this point anyway thick heavy buttercream takes the cake in a whole different direction in a way that 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 obscures some of the original flavor which i think is what happened with this album now you grow up with it and part of me, even back when I was a kid, realized, well, this is not like a normal Beatles album, not just because there were a lot of incidentals on there, but because of the way it sounded. You didn't get, the closest you got to something like that, to me, was the song Good Night on the White Album, you know, where it, it had the, the lushness of vocals and strings and all of that in a way that was much more, in, in some ways you might even say easy listening. A lot of that showed up more, on Let It Be because of Phil Spector. Both of those things, the, you know, the choir, backup vocals, and the uh, strings, you know, especially think of Long and Winding Road, you know, which was already beautiful and heartfelt and soaring and didn't need that, which is why I'm going to mention right now Let It Be Naked. Paul uh, kind of spearheaded this. Uh, it's interesting that there were some proposed track sequences for what was going to be called Get Back before it it was ditched and redone and Let It Be came out that were not the Let It Be track sequence. And I'll get to the sequence in a bit. That is not the sequence of Let It Be Naked. I, that's one that I guess Paul and whoever else he collaborated with, maybe George Martin or Giles, uh, you know, came together and put this sequence together. I think it's a very good sequence. I think they're both very good sequences. Uh, but I I think that if you like anything about Let It Be and the Beatles on the whole, it's worth listening to Let It Be Naked to get a better sense of, well, if at that point they were factionalized, then you can't say that the Let It Be we grew up with was what all of them wanted. And you can't say that Let It Be Naked was what all of them wanted. So listen to both and kind of you know, put them together in your head and you get a better sense of what could have been if they had stayed together and worked together to bring it all home, uh, you know, as an album, as a foursome. Uh, in fact, I would love it if someone were to put together another album from Let It Be and Let It Be Naked with the ones that, 
worked well with uh, Phil Spector, the ones that worked better with just leaving it as was with George Martin and all of that. And, and to create that end album of, well, this is how it might have sounded if they had stayed together and, and you know, brought it, brought it home together as a group. Uh, another thing about Let It Be, this album, even though we see all the stuff they were doing in the Get Back and, and you know, working on songs, trying to put them together, some of which ended up here, some of which ended up on Abbey Road, some of which ended up on their solo albums, it actually ended up being the least amount of recording time for any of their albums since Rubber Soul. Prior to Rubber Soul, their recording time slowly increased, and then it jumped uh, after Rubber Soul, and especially, you know, Sgt. Pepper, etc., and especially White Album. This went back to, you know, as, as advertised, back to basics, took a lot less time. And uh, also probably a little, they had petered out and they may have spent a lot more time in the studio if they had stayed together another year or two and done X, Y, or Z to some of the songs, but who knows. Uh, another thing, and I'll mention this uh, just in passing, it's probably my one of my least favorite Beatles uh, covers. You know, you can't get it out of your head if you've lived with it, and it's nice to show them as they were at that time. But there's really, to me, nothing artistic about it. And yeah, okay, so maybe that's the back to basics thing. But it's it's back to basics to me in a more presentational, Phil spector way than in a way that they might have intended, again, if they had stayed together. So not a favorite album cover of mine. Maybe they didn't care that much at that point or didn't have much to do with it. Uh, I think that if you want the fullest picture of this album and to understand how a lot of it came together, I would highly recommend the Get Back show. But if you don't want to spend that time and there are people who aren't as immersed in the Beatles as as we are or I am and have found it uh, slow-paced, then then you don't need to. I'd still recommend looking up Let It Be Naked, maybe listening to them back-to-back. But, you know, either way, I would recommend watching that show. So track listing, two of us. Um, I mean, what a great opener! Really does make that statement of this is a back to basics album and one of the most beautiful songs in their catalog and one of the most collaborative songs and songs where John and Paul are equals. It really is like this is the future that could have been in a way, but also again, like I said, an elegy, looking back on the career that. And, and, and friendship that they had already had for almost 15 years or at that point. Uh, Dig a Pony. I love how it messes with the time signature. And I have to say that it's one of the more underrated songs. Uh, it makes you realize how intensely creative they still were throughout all of this to have put together a song like this. I will say that I, I do like the Let It Be version better than the Let It Be Naked version because... I get that they wanted to start with the all I want is you and then jump into the song. It's kind of a neat way to do it. But for some reason, it seems a little too over the top for me. I kind of like the the one that was initially released. Uh, Across the Universe is a song. I know it's a favorite of a lot of people's. I think that that has been served better, actually, in covers. I think because of the way Phil Spector, you know, produced it and how he put it together from older recordings and slowed it down, it makes it a, a little ponderous to me. But at the same time, beautiful lyrics, beautiful melody, 
you know, beautiful chord changes too. I mean, mine. I mean, this just shows how strong George was at this point. And I will say, I think it still is his strongest period. It's just a great song. Another one that has time signature changes. And I love what it says. It's a song that my dad used to, you know, sing every now and then just out of the blue. So I may know it better than some other people or some other Beatles fans. And I think it's one of those underrated songs that you you really should listen to. I also really like George's vocals on this because he kind of splits the difference between his normal kind of lighter touch vocals that he had throughout his career and a little bit more bite in there too. Uh, dig it. Little snippet of, of a longer jam. Fun. That's the, that's them having fun, fun place. It's a way to show this is a quote unquote impromptu album. Uh, I think that it works cause it's true, but it also doesn't fully work because of how the rest of the album or some of the rest of the album was produced. It's almost like forcing the issue to make you believe that, Hey, this is how all of it was. But again, still fun. Uh, Let It Be. We know Let It Be. Not much to mention about that. Um, uh, Great, etc. But nice that they went from Let It Be to that, again, impromptu uh, Liverpool traditional folk song, Maggie May, which also ends up being the second shortest Beatles song on record. Literally on record. I forget what the shortest was. Uh, You can look that up. But I always thought it was as a kid, it was fun because they threw on that Scouse accent as heavily as they possibly could and really uh, played up the traditional folk and even skiffle feel of it, which was a throwback for them. Going to side two, I've got a feeling I don't understand why more people don't know this song as well as say, uh, Oh Darling, or maybe I'm amazed, you know, it's a powerhouse and one that you don't hear that often. So when you do hear it, you're like, yeah. And that freaking guitar lick and all of it and the, how it was kind of two songs and the way that they did that layering with John and Paul, uh, you know, with different melodies and lyrics that still works so freaking well together. Also, I would look up the Pearl Jam cover of this, which I think is a damn worthy cover version of this song. Uh, One After 909, uh, our band leader, Anthony Rella, loves saying to the uh, crowd that this is one of their latest and one of their earliest songs. Because if you know, as you know, it was written uh, mostly, or I think all or mostly by John back in the 50s, late 50s, and they tried to put it on one of their albums, it, or it might have been early 60s. Uh, it didn't work out, so they left it out. And there was, you know, wanting to revisit this in sort of a throwaway way. And it has the laid back feel that they were going for. And I got to say that even though it's, it's not a very um, all consuming song, it's fun to play live. Uh, and then the long and winding road. When you watch that, uh, movie from a couple of years ago where, it, you know, something happened and the Beatles never existed. And that guy was like, you know, presenting their music to the world, etc. you know, and plays it on the piano as a solo, you realize, or listen to let it be naked. You realize that it doesn't need what it 
got from Phil Spector. It, it stands alone as a song from beginning to end without need of anything. Uh, and is one of the reasons why I chose the featured song of mine for the end of this is, is this song and a couple things on Abbey Road. For You Blue again, again, shows that Harrison was at such a strong point here. And it's one of those songs that, again, is underrated and should be known by more people. It, to me, is a companion to two of us and just a wonderful way, you know, for Harrison to, in some ways, wrap up what he was doing, you know, depending on how you, you know, uh, the chronology of what you think came first or last with these two albums. But also shows him in a very kind of playful mood which you don't get a lot or you didn't get a lot from George at that time. He'd bring a lot more of it in later throughout his career. And then Get Back was supposed to be the title track of that. Uh, We know from watching the special that it was originally a political song about, you know, immigrants go home or whatever. Gee, not relevant at all. And then changed to what it was, which I think served it better. And, you know, and, and the song is again, iconic. It's also the first song I ever sang on stage. My dad's a lifelong performer. He'd perform in nightclubs, etc., casinos, private parties, uh, restaurants, and played this song when I was a year and a half old, would get up on stage with him and sing it. And I called it Jojo, the Jojo song. And it was actually a single that had just been released at the time. So you can do the math to get my age. But that is the first song I ever sang on stage. And then we have some, uh, no, there's a couple versions of Get Back. There's the album version, the non-album version. There might even be, I think, a third version. Uh, the non-album singles, The Ballad of John and Yoko, which was just done by Paul and John. And it shows how well they were still working together. There was an urgency, uh, John. He needed to do this and no one else was available. So the two of them got together and killed it. And it's another underrated song that needs to be listened to. The B-side of that was Old Brown Shoe from George. And it's a weird song. It's a song that was on the Blue or Red album. I forget which one. We can talk about that when we get to uh, part six but got a spotlight because of those that compilation. And I was never a big fan of this as a kid, but I have to say that it's grown on me, and not least because we perform this live in a way that gets the crowd going like you wouldn't believe. You wouldn't believe how much it would get people up dancing. So I'll brown you, look it up. Don't Let Me Down is to me sort of John's answer to I've Got a Feeling, and absolutely, again, absolutely amazing and great to play live. And then a personal, personal favorite of mine, also featured at the end of this podcast. Uh, you know my name, look up the number. There are people who can't stand this song or like What's the New Mary Jane or Revolution 9 or whatever. All different versions of them just messing around in the studio. And this was this one was in particular was put together through various sessions. And I love how it changes style. That that was a big influence on me. The humor in it was a big influence on me. The doing an accent was an influence on me for at least a, a couple of things that I have released. And I put a live version of this uh, at the end of this, which I'll talk about when we get there. But just one of my personal faves. 
my favorites on this album on the whole are uh, Two of Us, Dig a Pony, I Me Mine, uh, and then, yeah, I've Got a Feeling, One After 909, basically, Long and Winding Road, For You, Blue, and Get Back. So the whole second side, really. And I love all of the singles. All the non-album singles that I just mentioned, absolutely love. Which brings us to what I will call their final album. <laughs> and that is Abbey Road. I know there were other names considered, uh, but they ended up, to me, even though Let It Be was the more, quote-unquote, back-to-basics, there's a lot of back-to-basics elements on Abbey Road as well. Not as much in the sound, but in their approach, in their getting together in the studio and working these songs like crazy, the beautiful harmonies and things that they had done, you know, even more uh, when they were younger. And the whole idea of them going out and in just a few takes, taking that iconic cover photo without a tremendous amount of forethought and having just enough variation in what they were wearing because they didn't prep for it and the bare feet and the whole thing. There's a, and then naming it, well, this is the studio. And it wasn't even called that at the time, just happened to be on that road. It was, I think, later named Abbey Road. I forget what it was called at the time. Uh, that to me has a very kind of back to basics quality and also a happenstance kind of happy accident quality to it. Oh, this, what this just happened. Now it's going to be the thing, you know, this is also the album for which they, uh, put in the most recording time. And, and I'm qualifying this by saying, of course, white album being four sides had overall the most recording time. But if you, Divide that in half or take any two of those sides and add them up. It still comes out to less than the time it took for them to put Abbey Road together. So when you think about all that they were going through to have spent that much time in the studio when they were imploding and exploding is just tremendous. And we know that the outcome was tremendous. Uh, There's the whole, and this didn't start here because you go back and you can see things like, uh, I believe it's like a black flower, magical mystery, et cetera, et cetera. But the whole Paul is dead thing, backwards, you know, backwards lyrics and things that were, it was cranberry sauce, uh, but it's I buried Paul. Well, that wasn't the backward, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, Turn me on dead man, all that stuff. It's fascinating to me. Uh, anyone who's ever believed it also believes that the earth is, earth is flat, and I congratulate you for having such a creative imagination. But uh, if you, you know, even in the 70s and certainly the 80s, we know that Paul has not died yet. And yet, I loved all of it. Absolutely loved all of it, in part because I had a middle school music teacher who did a whole lesson on Paul is Dead. Now, I know there are wonderful teachers out there, some some in, you know, grades 1 through 12 or K through 12, uh, certainly some in colleges who can do kind of out there things like that, that, that aren't part of anybody else's curriculum or whatever. I hope there are more because even though there wasn't anything of super value to, you know, learn from that, the interest and intrigue and passion that you get from learning about that in school, it can't really is irreplaceable, you know. Uh, one of the assistant engineers on this album was Alan Parsons, which if you grew up in the 70s, especially 80s, for me, uh, you remember Alan Parsons because he formed, he worked with a lot of, you know, other acts, but then he formed the Alan Parsons Project and he had a big hit 
uh, Eye in the Sky, 1982, a song I actually really loved at the time. Uh, Let's get to it. Let's get to the tracks, right? So Come Together was originally written for Timothy Leary's California gubernatorial campaign against Ronald Reagan. So, you know, they knew well enough to know, let's do what we can to fight against Reagan. Of course, they lost, but whatever. It was repurposed and uh, lyrics were rewritten. It was slowed down by Paul, like I said, it differentiated from the Chuck Berry song, that bass line, which I love playing uh, because it's I, I know, it's a lot easier than it sounds. Um, certainly easier than uh, Day Tripper. Uh, although Day Tripper has its own, you know, easy qualities once you get into it. Uh, the lyrics, interesting to me that a few years ago I read this blurb that I've seen a couple times now that claims that each of the four verses was about one of the Beatles. So uh, in order, Ringo, George, John, Paul. So what I would say is look up the lyrics or listen, however you want to do it, and think and write down somewhere Ringo, George, John, Paul, and when they get to those verses, see what you think. See if that corresponds. I'd love to hear your answer on that. Uh, Second track, the side one is something. Yeah, we know it's incredible. One of the things I, uh, two of the things I love about this, other than performing it, is wonderful, uh, is that it was inspired by uh, Apple's first artist. James Taylor had a song, which if you know him well, you'll know this song. It's Something in the Way She Moves. Something in the way she moves. I don't remember the lyrics. Well, funny that that's the first line of George's song as well. He does something completely different with it. It takes it to a place that makes it just transcend transcendent. And it's interesting that he did that because he was then called the task for doing something somewhat similar. My Sweet Lord, not too much later, when he was, you know, accused of ripping off He's So Fine, whatever. There's a lot of that going on right now with Ed Sheeran and, and some of the other, even Miley Cyrus, I believe. Whatever. You can have your opinions on that. Um, most artists who are satisfied with themselves and their careers and their lives don't really care. Um, but if someone thought they had been cheated out of money in some way, and especially a lot of those you know, African-American artists at the time were cheated out of money, that's something different. Uh, Sinatra did a cover of something, which is a pretty decent cover. I think it's one of the more covered Beatles songs in general. Maxwell Silverhammer. I don't know if you are a Yoko, you know, I don't like Yoko person, but I will put you in this same camp because I don't know you. I can't see you. Stop hating on this song. Forget about what the disgruntlement of them spending way too much time in the studio and everybody else being frustrated. I get that. And the perfectionism and whatever. The, the result is what matters. And the, the Mo, use of the Moog and all of that, how it was used and, and, and stumbled on in some ways and how freaking big it was, if you see from back then, it, it is a very good song. It is a, a, a music hall song that I read somewhere that someone said only the Kinks could do a song like this and do it as well. And they did, you know, Tiny Afternoon or whatever. There have been a few of those. Uh, the lyrics are inventive. The story is fun and funny and dark. It's about a freaking serial killer. It's got hooks up the ass. And you put all that together and create a successful song. You try that. You try that. 
you know, just stop hating on this song. I'm not going to say it's in my top 10 or 20 favorites of theirs, but I'm, it's far from the bottom 20 or 30 or 40. Also interesting that he uses the word, Paul uses the word pataphysical, which uh, I never really looked up till recently, is Alfred Jarry's uh, made up that word, and it's, it means science of imaginary solutions. So that's something that was of interest. Paul was a reader, he is a reader, whatever. Threw that in there, very cool. Oh, darling, uh, I could do an entire, well, pod fast anyway, on this song. I love this song. I love everything about it. It's hard to sing. It was hard for Paul to sing. Uh, it's it's incredible on every level. It's such a simple song, but it's so freaking effective. Uh, Octopus's Garden, Ringo, uh, co-written. I believe that George helped a lot too. And it's one of Ringo's best to me. And there's some great guitar licks and the whole thing and the and the background vocals that sound like, you know, they're underwater. You know, whatever that is. I'm I'm a little hoarse right now, so I can't get to all of it. Uh but but great and and something to point out before we get to the last track on this side. This is probably this album, probably of the Beatles, has my favorite track sequence. It's just incredibly effective, uh, flowing in some ways and surprising in some ways on both sides of the album. End of which this side is, I want you, she's so heavy. August 20, 1969 was the last time all four of them were in the studio together and they were working on this song. It is heavy metal. It is bluesy. It is progressive. It is dark ambient. It is drone metal. It is doom metal like the band Sun, which if you've seen them, it's S-U-N-N with a, with a O or circle and then parentheses, which is just meant to mean sun, you know. Uh, that, it's a precursor to a lot of music like that. And I'm not going to say they invented that because I know there were other bands at the time doing something similar. But as far as being uh, the Beatles and putting that on an album, and it's such a long song, I mean, talk about the hell with it, letting it all loose. And it immerses you when you listen to it and has surprises in it and is is not just drony. It's inventive and all of that stuff. It's one of my favorites, really. Side two, here's an interesting thing. I'm not a person who's like, oh, vinyl's better than everything. I've never been that way. And the purest you can get to the original sound, the, the, the best it is, you know. And that has something to do with what you're playing it on or the speakers or your headphones or whatever. But it has something to do with the, you know, media, the format as well. And I honestly don't care. Vinyl, CD, cassette, digital, whatever. But in this case, I'm going to go out and say that it is actually better to listen to this album digitally than anywhere else. Not because of the quality. Again, that's up to you. But because the sequence that you, you don't get without flipping a record from I Want You to Here Comes the Sun is one of the most cathartic transitions in all of music. To go from that heaviness and re- repetition and droniness and stopping on a dime and then here comes the beautiful beginning of Here Comes the Sun. It gives me chills just even talking about it. You know, uh, and we know how beautiful this song is, etc. It's really, really fun to play live as well. 
um, because some of the best harmonies they ever recorded, the Beatles, and so some of the best harmonies ever recorded by anyone, tremendously worked on and done so incredibly well. It's been written that um, Yoko, I think, was playing Moonlight Sonata and said, and John said, play those chords backwards. And that's where he got the idea for the progression. I've never checked that. Uh, but if someone has, let me know if that is the case, that they are the Moonlight Sonata chords backwards. It'd be very cool to know. Uh, it's just a cool fact as well. And um, it's, wait a minute. Yeah, no. So yeah, that's it for that. I, I'm mixing it up with another song, which I'll get to in a second, which leads right into freaking You Never Give Me Your Money, which is on its own an amazing song. And ver- other versions of it have been uh, amazing as well. It's a song that should be heard more often. It's a song that is sort of the uh, more uh, biting version, I guess, of of a long and winding road in a way. It's very piano heavy. It's wonderful on every level. And it's the start of the medley. It's the start of that song, Sweet, on side two, which takes you away in a way that makes you feel their ending, you know, is what I'll, is what I'll say, which by the way, oh uh, yeah. Which by the way, I am working on a new rec album. I've mentioned this before. It, it, I don't know what it's coming out, but it'll be sometime this year. I'm three and a half songs in, I'm doing them in order for a reason. And one of the reasons is because the first five songs of the album minimum, maybe six or seven are sweet. They lead one into the other. Certainly, you know, influenced by this album, Abbey Road, and some other albums that have done that, connecting one song to the next. All the songs stand alone well, like how like so many of these do. Uh, but they are meant to go together. Just so, just a little precursor to what's coming soon. Uh, and then that whole part in this song of uh, no, that's different. But Lennon and Harrison traded off solos at the end of this song, which I didn't I didn't know. Uh, and, might have guessed if I listened to it more closely, but it's cool that they, you know, were willing to do that and did that. Leads into, right into Sun King. More incredible harmonies, like because, and honestly, some of the best nonsense lyrics in any music ever. Quando Paramucho, Chica Ferdi or whatever, look them all up. They were nonsense and meant to be nonsense. They wanted them to sound, you know, non-English. And they succeeded But I think even as a kid, I was like, I don't think this really means, you know, I always think of these uh, when I hear the beginning of U2's Vertigo and he says, unos, dos, tres, catorce. It's like all that's kind of messed up, but on purpose in a very much smaller way, but very cool. With Sun King leads into Mean Mr. Mustard. If anybody knows, they might be giants. Think of albums where they have had snippets of songs that was just enough to get the flavor of the song and they moved on to something else. Now, I know this song was longer in its original incarnation, was never fully produced. I like it this way. I would love to hear a full version of it. I think a couple people have done it and I'd have to look that up, like covered it. Now, and then then into Mean Mr. Mustard, uh, Her Majesty, wrong. Why did I say that? Because that was supposed to be there. The last song on this entire album was supposed to be After Me, Mr. Mustard. And when I get to it, 
I'll explain what happened. But what really happened was they put Polythene Pam in, which is a great cut. Mean Mr. Mustard, boom, Polythene Pam. Chords come in, sounds like the Who. I think that was their intent. What we can do, the Who does, you know, let's do that. They did that a couple times with the Who, with the loudness of certain songs, etc. I'd love to hear a full version of this, and I read somewhere that there are uh, people who have covered this in a full version. But this is a song that I think could have been a hit on its own if it had been fully, you know, realized. Leading straight into She Came In Through the Bathroom Window, another powerhouse song, like You Never Give Me Your Money, like Long and Winding Road. Um, it just has that, I, I lump them together as it has that feel, a really fun song to sing. It it really kind of presages um, Paul's solo work in many, many ways and leads right into Golden Slumbers, which is an adaptation of a poem by the Elizabethan poet and writer, etc., Thomas Decker, and is beautiful but also powerful. Uh, I read that Paul intended, you know, to push some of those uh, vocals to be more powerful, to offset the the beauty of the rest of it and the softness of the rest of it. And he certainly did that. And it's one of those songs that just grabs you. Uh, Leading right into freaking carry that weight, which I've heard meant carrying the weight of the legacy beyond the band. So going solo and still knowing that they'd be carrying that weight. There was a reprise of You Never Give Me Your Money in this uh, with the orchestra in there and then singing a little bit of it and very cool leading into the end and i always as a kid wasn't sure which song was which at this point but the end you know oh yeah all right oh you're gonna be in my dreams tonight and then boom you know it, you got ringo's only drum solo on record as a beetle probably ever i don't know if he's done it solo uh leading straight into Guitar solo, but it's not a guitar solo. It's nine guitar solos. It's the three guitarists trading off solos. I don't remember what the order was. Uh, uh, I bet if I listened to it, I could probably tell you. Uh, Their styles are very different, but work well together. And it's cool that they did three times three is nine. It's just something about that really works. All of their personalities are on display. All of the tension between them and differences and all of the collaboration and love and it all resolves nicely. But what I found interesting, and I don't know if you had this experience when I listened to it on vinyl, it sounds like it modulates right at the end. And I'd love somebody to comment on that. Do you hear the chords at the end of the end modulating into a, maybe a quarter step up or half step up or something like that? Let me know. It doesn't happen digitally. Is it just something I imagined? I'd love to know that. And that's the end of the album. But it's not, because for the first time, I believe in history, an artist put a hidden track on an album, and that's Her Majesty. And there are hidden tracks everywhere, you know, now. I mean, not even to this day, I will say, and there will be a hidden track on Rex's next album as well. Again, this was supposed to be between me, Mr. Mustard, and Polythene Pam, and you can hear the last chord of me, Mr. Mustard, start. If you put me, Mr. Mustard, together with Her Majesty, it it does sound like that's the last chord of me, Mr. Mustard. But it works so much better here. And even though it was somewhat of an accident that it was there at all, but, but, uh, you know, and then in the end, intentional. It, It leaves you, it shows you how intimate and funny and loose they could be. And I know it's just Paul, but still... Uh, it it feels like 
a death because it ends abruptly, which I think makes it better even. Don't need to hear that last note. And is such a, again, like a poignant end to their career. Uh, Favorites of this album, go back, just listen to the whole thing, all of it. This was my first, I think it was my first favorite album of theirs. Fairly sure. Uh, Quick conclusion. They became, to me, they became immortal specifically because of this period. They were already successful, famous, iconic. They didn't need to do any of this. But then they do this. And and what they did and how it ended made them immortal. And that's why, that's why, you know, people much younger than I am or we are still talking about the Beatles and playing the Beatles and covering the Beatles and using the Beatles in uh, commercials and TV shows, whether it's covers of the originals and there's, you know, so many releases and et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's in large part because of how they wrote out this ending. So now that first five episodes of the series are done and their career is done as a foursome, I'm going to make some proclamations. And that is four things uh, in the, the album-wise. I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty about songs, etc. It's too much. You can tell me what your favorite Beatles song is and what your least favorite and all that stuff or what you think their best song is, even if it's not your favorite. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Their overall best album as a singular work of art, as a cohesive, not just talking about individual songs, of course they have to be good too, but how it all comes together, drum roll, I'm not at my drums, is Abbey Road. Sergeant Pepper is in the running, sure, because of the cohesiveness of that. Uh, I, I'm going to say, hands down, I think uh, as an album, as a singular work of art, it's Abbey Road. Their most musically creative and innovative album, I talked about this uh, a couple of episodes ago, uh, part three, I think, is it was a close call between Robert Song and Revolver, but you got to give it to Revolver for a couple of reasons. I won't go into it again, but as far as them being their most musically creative, expansive, and innovative, that's Revolver. The best album as a collection of great songs, great singles. I said this in the last uh, part four, Magical Mystery Tour. It's a surprise to me too, but go and listen to it and you will be blown away by every single track on that album. Blown away. And And it's diverse enough too. And it's in a sweet spot of when they were still somewhat psychedelic, but coming out of the psychedelic too is an interesting place to be. And then last but not least, my current favorite, I said this before last episode, is the White Album. Uh, that may shift. It will probably shift at some point in the future. I also think the White Album is the best place for non-fans to start because it has a little bit of everything. And it has surprises. And it has, oh, well, I only know the Beatles as the John songs or the Paul songs or the George songs or their early career or their, or their middle period or whatever, this has flavors of all of that. So I'd recommend to anybody who doesn't know the Beatles well to start with the White Album. Plus, it's the longest, so you get the most. Which leads into the last part of this and uh, every episode. My song, it's a double feature. Uh, first one is a song called Home To on the album The Metro Grand Sessions, which I recorded under the name Nick before Rec existed. 
It's a, a piano song that is very simple, very back to basics. There's not a lot of flash to it. It's piano-based drums. I think that might be that's all, all that's in there. Um, haven't heard it in a while, to be honest. Uh, but it was very well received. That album, The Metro Gan Sessions, was very well received. Uh, one critic said that they heard in this song, Home To, uh, shades of Vince Guaraldi and George Winston, and they couldn't be more right because those were both huge influences on my piano playing. There was also um, a little bit of how you 2 uses piano is within that song, Home To. And then, of course, clearly the Beatles, the way the the, the chord progression, how the beat goes, uh, how much piano is on Abbey Road and on Let It Be and the mellow back to basics of Let It Be. Uh, this song seemed like a perfect pick for this episode. Plus, it starts with kind of a almost like a reverse chord progression. It's not a fade in, but you'll see how it kind of leads up into the um, first verse chorus. And it ends hanging on a very uncertain chord and a very uncertain vocal. And those are both very kind of Beatlesque things to do. So that's why I chose that song. And it's a melancholy song. You know, it has a long and winding road feel to it. And it has a, a little bit of a bite to it, too. The way you might say, you never give me your money. I don't know. But it's very personal. It has to do with uh, where is home? And what do you do when you get there? Oh, it's existential in that way. And it's also a very short song. Uh, you can stream it anywhere, but it takes, you know, in the next 30 seconds, stick around and listen to it. Followed by a live version of You Know My Name, Look Up the Number, which I recorded on uh, line a little while back as a character named Rupert. And that's all I'm saying. If you uh, are just listening, you'll get some of that flavor. But I urge you to look up this video because you will get to see Rupert in all his glory and in his hat and his uh, erratic emotions. But it was a real treat to cover this song, or to do at least not cover it, but to do it live. Uh, are either of these albums your favorite Beatles albums? Is this your favorite period? Is it not? Well, you know, how does this compare to other periods of the Beatles for you? Do you think it was better that they broke up, or do you still wish that they stayed together? I argue that it's Better that they broke up, even though I do wish that they stayed together. So I guess I'm in the middle because they went out on a high and they went out with such fire and force as to start to create some of their best work afterwards as well. But your mileage may vary. And and if you look up that that long, that 12 years shot Richard Linklater movie, I forget the name of it, where there's a playlist that somebody said, well, what would their next albums have been where they put some of their solo work together? That's actually very cool, and it's something I'm probably going to listen to after I'm done this. Uh, I'd like to know what you think about all this, because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you. Thank you for getting through five parts of this six-part series, and I'll talk to you next week.
the Beatles. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.